Fakes the handoff. He drives the lane. He takes it to the house. Bouncing off defenders. He just laid it in. He just put it up and in. 56 seconds to play. Oh, by the way. Live in the entertainment capital of the world. Game 7 is over. It's an instant classic. It's the T.C. Martin Show. A three for the game. It's time to get your daily prescription from the doctor, T.C. Martin. You've got to pinch me. The doctor is now in. Happy Monday to you. Oh, yes, a busy, riveting, exciting sports weekend, whether it was here in Vegas or abroad. And we got it all covered for you today on this Monday. T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank with you right here. Numbchuck on the other side of the crystal clean glass. So crystal clear, I can just reach through it almost. Very nice. All right, B.J. Armstrong is going to join us today. The three-time champ as we talk NBA Finals. As predicted, Milwaukee Bucks going to show up in Game 3. They're going to win by plenty. They did by 20 last night. What's going to happen in Game 4? We've got a few days to think about that because Game Number 4 isn't until Wednesday. So B.J. Armstrong will join us. We'll talk to him about that. Paul Buckpower Stewart, our good friend from England. That's right. It's about uh, 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock across the pond right now. So Paul Stewart staying up late just so he can join us. So we could talk about the bloody day after England loses Euro 2020 to Italia. Is that really staying up that late? I think for him it is because I think he, he works early in the day. Because he's always saying that he has to you know, get his sleep and he, he has to stay up late to watch these games. And well, I see so, watching the games if yeah. they're at like 2 o'clock in the morning or something. Yeah. But I mean, like when we have them at 11, that's when we're watching the local news. That's true. Yeah. But as you know, I mean, I'm sure it's that way over there too. Everyone has different schedules. And if you work early in the morning, you get to bed. Or if you work, you know, graveyard. Well, I get or, that. That's, that's what I just said. Yeah. Is it really late? For, I don't know what late for him is, you know. Well, you can ask him. Yeah. yeah. But if you're nocturnal like yourself. Then you know you're you're good twenty four seven. Well, I was watching Wimbledon mm-hmm. obviously this weekend, the mm-hmm. women's and the gentlemen's final. I was watching uh, Australian rules football, and you're watching live, so you're getting up at eight o'clock in the morning, seven o'clock, and all that. Sorry. So when do you sleep? Well, you w- don't w- sleep, do you? W- Wimbledon starts at six, my friend, and and yes. and, the, and the and the football, the Australian rules football starts at about two a.m. So they were showing back to back games in that. So mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so and there was also a tournament going on in Hamburg uh, before the Wimbledon started. So yes, yeah, so there was a lot of tennis. And, Same and time frame going there, on. In England and, and Germany. So there you go. All right, so look forward to talking to him. Heidi Fang will join us. We'll get Heidi on. We'll talk UFC 264, what we, which we got a chance uh, to witness on Saturday night as well, too. But uh, just so much to talk about. Uh, NBA Finals, Team USA loses to Nigeria. I think we talked about that on Friday as well, too. Like, uh, be careful here. And sure enough, Nigeria showed up and not only... Uh, uh, performed well, but they beat the United States. Granted, it was an exhibition game, but should you be worried? Of course you should be worried. And how about if you are USA Basketball? You invite Nigeria to come to Las Vegas. You put them up at uh, you know, a you know, beautiful resort hotel. They, they get to play at the Mandalay Bay, the Michelob Ultra Arena. You feed them nice. And uh, what happens? Oh, they come in and they, uh, they, they, they dish it out to you. Yeah. After... The last two times United States played Nigeria, they won by a combined 127 points. 
beat him by 83 points, which was a record back in 2012. And then they beat him by 44 points in 2016. Now, 2021, Nigeria beats Team USA with Kevin Durant. So no excuses to be made here. The USA didn't have their best players. Yeah, they're missing, what, two players, three players that are playing the NBA Finals, Chris Middleton and Devin Booker. Yeah, be concerned because they play Australia tonight. And Australia's better than Nigeria. And I'm not saying that USA's going to lose or whatever, but again, this is a concern. Yes, it's a wake-up call. And this has been the right on the wall for some time now that all these other countries are getting better. You know, you're going to get their best effort. It's not that important to these United States basketball players, especially the NBA superstars. It's not important to them, but it certainly is important to these other countries. And, uh... The Nigerians who had eight NBA players, head coach Mike Brown, who knows a thing or two about coaching here in the NBA, the assistant head coach to Steve Kerr at the Warriors, used to be the head coach with the Cleveland Cavaliers. So, yeah, good for Mike Brown. And we're going to talk more about this tomorrow on on Terrible Tuesday, but just since I'm on my little rant here, it is making me, I hate to say this, don't say anti-American, but it is making me root against our team. And I can say our team because it's Team USA. It's making me root against the Americans because we're not putting forth our best effort again with our best players, and we have this attitude like, well, we really don't need to go. And I'm finding myself, I think like a lot of people, rooting against Team USA because I want to say, hey, Take this. This is what you deserve. If you're not going to put your best athletes and your best players on the floor, you deserve to lose. Well, I'm not going to go so far as to say that I'm rooting against them, but I will be watching with a bit more interest now. I'll be curious to see how they play Australia because, like you said, they lost to Nigeria, and it's not like Nigeria is like, well, we knew that they were going to be playing for the gold medal game. You know, uh, Nigeria is probably feeling a little bit happy that they're even in the tournament because they weren't a shoo to be there, although they do have some NBA players. They're not the superstar players. They're the end-of-the-bench type players for the most part. But, yeah, I mean, there's definitely concern out there. I'm also curious to see what it's going to be like because not only did they lose to Nigeria, but they lose to Nigeria on a home court where the crowd was behind them. In Japan, there's going to be no crowd at all. They're not going to have anybody cheering USA or even booing them, how some players can take that as a cheer or something like that. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, would they be better off saying no fans for the rest of these exhibition games either to get used to what it's going to be like in Japan? It's going to be a strange situation. Maybe it is a wake-up call. Maybe when all is said and done, we're going to go, remember that game against Nigeria and how that lit the fire and gave them that kick in the butt and then they spearheaded themselves and they went on to play USA championship gold medal winning basketball we could be saying that at the end of the olympics or we could be saying yep we told you the precursor right before everything started but i am curious to see how it goes and i'm also really curious to see curious to see what it's going to be like because again remember the olympics now no spectators in any sporting event yeah yeah and again it's going to be that way for everybody and again it's not like they're playing in front of raucous crowds. I mean, the people that are going to these exhibition games here—they're—they're they're not, you know—they're—they're they're casual fans, and they're there to, you know, seek autographs and you know get to see Team USA. And but this you know, and they're chanting USA but, and waving their flags eh, and stuff like that. I didn't—I didn't see much of that, you know, at all. But again, that's really near either here or there. The—the the thing is that again, 
It's it's not a surprise. That's why I said it on Friday. Do you know they were plus twenty eight and a half at the sports book, minus ten thousand. You want to lay ten thousand to win a hundred dollars, you lose. Plus twenty eight and a half. You were never in jeopardy. You were never in doubt in in this game. Could you take but, Nigeria on a money line? Was there a money line? Yeah, that? that's what I said. Minus ten thousand for USA and plus twenty five hundred for Nigeria. But that's an awful low plus when it's minus ten. But that's what the books do. You know, the the no, I understand the favorite, that they, the larger I understand the gap. that, yeah. but it's yeah. like, but wow, yeah, exactly. That's a, that's a quarter of what the minus yeah. is. Well, it's just like with Major League Baseball nowadays. You know, go back to when the Minnesota Twins, uh, you know, uh, beat the Atlanta Braves, and they were like, you know, two hundred to one. Yeah, one was like three hundred, the other one was two hundred. Yeah, remember ball, and, that? And they said that's the last time that will ever there happen. You go. They'll never let the odds right. get like that. Right. So if you want the Arizona Diamondbacks right now, well, it's different because the season's. You know, it's the middle of the season. They're horrendous. They're not going to win. But they have crazy odds like that. But, you know, at the beginning of a Major League Baseball season or NFL season or NBA season, the worst odds you might see is like 80 to 1, 60 to 1. But, yeah, it, it's, it's definitely a concern. It, it's, it's definitely a concern because you're not sending your best players. So I think that is the message. And would, would this be a major concern if you had Steph Curry, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard? Yeah, that, th- then. But it would never happen. There, there's, there would never be a doubt. You're not going to lose those games. Team USA is 54 and two in exhibition games before this. 54 and two. So you should still expect to win, expect to dominate, and they didn't. And again, for me, not not a major surprise. Like we've talked about time and time again, the rest of the world is getting better, and they have been better for for quite some time. And this is their this is their Super Bowl. Well, and the other thing too is not only is the rest of the world getting better, but some players from the rest of the world they're more in tune to the to the Olympic rules with the wider lane and different things like that because it is a little bit of a different game, and that's how sometimes the USA can be exploited by a couple of these teams because a lot of these guys grew up playing that type of rule there. You know, I mean, again, uh, the NFL is far superior to the CFL. But if they played Canadian rules football in a game, the NFL players might be like, wait, what the hell is going on here? And they're not that drastic, but there is a little bit of different rules, too. So, yeah, again, I don't think it's panic time or anything, but it's definitely a concern. Yeah, definitely. All right. So uh, busy, busy weekend. And uh, we talk about what happened there with Team USA in Nigeria. But let's talk about 264, UFC 264 at T-Mobile Arena. We saw... Dustin Poirier, victorious over Conor McGregor. Uh, the hype was there. Uh, the delivery was there, definitely by Poirier, who delivered a, a victory. And people are calling it a knockout. They're calling it a TKO. It's not that. It's a doctor stoppage at the end of one. But did Dustin Poirier win the fight? No question he won the fight. He won it in convincing fashion with five minutes of domination over Conor McGregor. Uh, and it... it at the end of round one, McGregor goes down. We saw the ankle break, fracture, leg, ugly, whether it was the kicks to the shin or, or whatever it was. But, you know, McGregor can cry all he wants, and we see his, uh, you know, theatrics and his antics once again. And uh, it's just amazing how we continue to see him making excuses. Bottom line is he lost, he got dominated. And we talked about it leading up to the show last week, especially on Friday. This would not surprise us at all. And sure enough, it happened. Dustin Poirier, a minus-130 favorite winner. 
Yeah, to, to be honest, I was actually surprised that it was a lo- that low of an odds because I thought Poirier was going to win. And again, we don't know for sure what would have happened in the second and third rounds if it would have continued, but it looked to me like Poirier was in, he was in command of the fight. I know when we were watching a lot of people early on when Connor got that choke and some people thought he was going to end it, I didn't think there was any way that he was ending it that early on a choke. Now again, if it was me, yeah, he would have ended it. Because I would have tapped or going to sleep or something because I don't know how to get out of that stuff because my instinct would be to fight. But Poirier's been in a thousand fights. He knows this stuff. They work it in the gym. You have to relax and stay calm. And once he got out of that, he actually then had top position. And from that point on, he did dominate. It was a nice move, but also in a way a risky move too because if you don't finish, then you are in the bottom position there. But that to me was the highlight of Connor's best chance right. in the fight. And it was so early on that I never thought he was going to finish it there. Mm-hmm. From that point on, I thought Poirier kind of dominated the fight. I thought he was in control of it. Yeah, it's a shame that it ended the way it did, but uh, Dustin Poirier is and was the better fighter, and uh, now we'll see if he can get the belt back. All right, our good friend Heidi Fang, who covered it, was there for the Las Vegas Review-Journal. We got a chance to talk to Heidi on Friday while she was uh, sweating bullets uh, outside of the 117 degrees at T-Mobile Arena. Heidi, what's going on? guys how are you we're good we're good we're good all right so first of all Heidi talk about the atmosphere uh 264 sellout crowd fans were back there did was it uh you know reminiscent of what we saw a couple years ago there at T-Mobile a little bit but not as much as it would have been if the travel ban through Europe had been lifted and there were like fans from Ireland there because those guys are nuts like they'll do anything to support Conor McGregor in in a fight, during a fight, after a fight, and uh, a lot of those guys weren't able to come overseas, so I I feel like it was missing that element, but it was as close as it gets to back to normal, full house kind of fight. I mean, 20,000 fans, uh, it was just a rocking house. You saw all the celebrities out there, so it was one of those things where you have that big fight feel, and I haven't really felt that in a while in in, in Las Vegas, and here we are, fight capital, something you want to feel, right? And I think this had those elements. All right, so talk about what your eyes saw in those five minutes of that round number one with uh, Poirier and McGregor. And Poirier looked good. I, I was listening to you guys talk about it here before I came on, and I just felt like you are right on, TC, that he was really in his game, uh, despite the guillotine attempts and all of that, when he had Connor in compromising positions, because there's a rule in MMA Submission before position is something you don't do, and that's what you saw happen with McGregor. He went for the submission. He ended up putting himself in a compromising spot, and Dustin Poirier was able to take control of the fight from there for that round. And when when I watch back today, there's a coach in Las Vegas, and i got to pay him his dues here when I speak about this. Eric Nisik is the head coach at uh, Extreme Couture MMA. He put on Twitter today a video that his mom found, that broke down what happened when Connor's ankle broke. And you can see it happen on a check kick, like Dustin said. He Connor kicks, Dustin checks it, he gets his elbow in there. So the kick doesn't connect with anything but his elbow. And once it does, you see Connor kind of start to favor that leg. And he continues to fight, but the next thing you know, as soon as uh, Dustin gets him, he falls back on it, and you can just see it crumble. So uh, props to Eric Nistic's mom, I guess you could say, of <laughs> uh, finding that clip and slowing it down and putting it up on Twitter. But if anybody wants to see it and 
could have happened because Dustin did say that in his post fight that you could see it happen. And then you do see the, the beginning grimace and the favoring of that ankle on um, that moment in the fight, right? About maybe seven seconds left in the round. So it's pretty crazy how that happened and went down. Yeah, it was funny too because, well, not funny, but it was kind of strange because when McGregor went back and that ankle snapped like that, and if he didn't catch it right away, when he kind of fell back, Poirier. He, he kind of hesitated for a second because he wasn't sure what was going on. Then he went and he jumped on him and tacked him because the round wasn't over yet. And then, of course, uh, now McGregor's camp is saying that he kind of injured himself going into the fight, that it was hurt a little bit before then. They did some kind of MRI or something, and maybe that even damaged it more, which I don't understand how checking it out damages it more. But <clears throat> the bottom line was I thought Poirier was winning the fight at that point. And I know McGregor's still talking a lot of stuff because that's what he's going to do. But uh, to me, it almost seems like uh, all it kind of did was save McGregor getting a little bit more of a beating because I thought Poirier was in charge and uh, I thought he was going to come out even stronger in the second round. Now, we don't know that for sure, but I just think Dustin Poirier right now is a better fighter than Conor McGregor. Yeah, and Dana put it into perspective in the post-fight press conference, and it's something I touched on before um, in my, when I came on last time with you guys, was that Poirier has done what he needs to evolve in the game, and he's put himself up against killers every day at American Top Team in Florida, guys who are fighting at the top level, and women too, Amanda Nunes, uh, the double champ, she trains at the uh, AT&T camp as well. So when you're going up against savages, every day in that kind of environment, you're pushing yourself, you're raising your bar. And I think that when Poirier lost back in 2014 uh, to Connor, you know, he really realized what he needed to do. And it was to focus in and to do this and to push himself if he wanted to be at the top of his game. And credit to him for acknowledging what his shortcomings were and figuring him out and getting himself into a position to train with people who can help him there. And, you know, Connor has had the same people around him, the same training partners around him. Granted, he's probably brought in uh, a couple different people here and there, I'm sure, because every fight camp fighters do do that. But um, I thought the move to L.A. would help him, and maybe he would surround himself with other people in camp that could help him as well. But he hasn't switched up the coaches or the minds, you know, the there's a lot of people around him, I feel like, that maybe are yes-men that are telling him, that's great, you're doing well, where, you know, maybe he needs to change something and reevaluate something in his fight camp to get back to that upper echelon where he was because he was an elite fighter, and I'm not going to say he's a has-been by any means. He's had his share of um, good fights, and he's still very marketable, and he's brilliant, by the way, to have sat there injured in the octagon canvas and make a, a promo, basically, promoting him, getting himself into talks for a fourth fight was brilliant. Whether or not it was crass and people saw it as being a low life, or if it was just him being smart enough to recognize, if I don't do something now to promote a fourth fight, I'm not going to get back into this, you, you know, big card with the UC. So I think Connor was really smart to sit there and throw, you know, more verbal harassment at Poirier and his wife while he's on the ground, if that was his intention at all, because um, it definitely sets up the fourth fight. And now you have Dana saying, yeah, we need a fourth fight. This isn't settled. So whether or not he was doing it just out of sheer anger and frustration or if he was doing it out of the back of his mind to say, I need to say something now to set up a fourth fight, it is (laughs) 
brilliant at that time at that moment. All right, Heidi Fang joins us from the Las Vegas Review Journal who covers the MMA and a plethora of other things as well, too. Okay, I'm going to say this, Heidi. Both of these guys are 32 years old, and coming into the fight, I was saying this, and it just lock, stock, and barrel showed me afterwards as well, too. One guy is is on his way out, and one guy is getting better and better with every fight. And Poyu just looked like the better fighter, the more polished fighter, the more confident fighter. And what McGregor was doing, you call it brilliance. I call it survival. I call it being desperate because his act is wearing thin, which we talked about last week. And for Dana White to say that nothing settled and to agree with McGregor there was a fourth fight, that's garbage. There is no need for a fourth fight because they, Poyer would have dominated round two, would have dominated round three. Yeah, money. Okay, money. But I'm telling you, people are not that stupid. They're not going to want to see this guy over and over again. This is three out of the last four fights he's lost. He's non-competitive. And you're right. The only way that he gets in the ring and looks good is against a lesser-known opponent. And if people want to pay for that, God bless him. But anybody who knows UFC knows that he gets in against a Poya again. He's not going to win. He gets in against a Khabib again, which will probably never happen. But any of the upper echelon guys, he's not winning. He hasn't looked good. And I, I'm, I won't say has been, but what I'm saying is against upper-level competition, forget about it. It's no different than all these other aging fighters that we've seen. He is done against the upper echelon, and he's desperate, and he has to do this to try to save face. But what he's doing is making himself even look bad and, make, and making himself look worse with these comments to, you know, about Poirier and his wife and everybody else. Yeah, first of all, the use of the word plethora is amazing. I like that you worked that in. Secondly, <laughs> Unfortunately, I use it too much, though. <laughs> I, I, it's good. It's good. I don't think they can describe me as any other way except maybe a utility player. But, uh, the, you know, when um, you have Connor, like you said, sitting there and throwing um, all this stuff at Jolie Poirier, which, you know, she's a, a head of uh, Dustin's charities and all of that. So a lot of people have been saying, oh, she was in Connor's DMs or, you know, she was trying to make, uh, you know, something happen with, with Connor there on Instagram. No, I think she was really going after some money that Connor had promised the charity and she was trying to talk to him with, you know, what uh, available means are there to be able to communicate with somebody that isn't answering phone calls. So. And Heidi, let's go ahead and play. Let's go ahead and play this back uh, for people that didn't see it. Here it is. Here's Conor McGregor on the mat. Joe Rogan is interviewing him, and I think it's the first, I guess, uh, post-fight interview we've uh, seen conducted on a mat. Which I told you was going to happen after the fight. Yeah, it did. Yeah, Uh, pathetic. But go ahead. I was boxing the blade and head off him, kicking the blade and leg off him. Hughes will show you do it to close the distance. This is not over. If we have to take this outside with him, it's all outside. We don't give a. There was no check. There was not one of them I checked. Your wife is in me DMs. Hey, baby. Hit me back on my chance later on. We'll be at the after party to win my club, baby. You're looking bitch, you little him. Just the thing had separated and we bleed and landed on the wonky leg like Anderson Silver that time. Something similar to that. It's a mad out business. Heidi Fang, subtitles, please. Yeah, he's saying this isn't over. He was talking about Jolie coming up. That she was looking really nice, but that he was still going to get it against Dustin. 
and he was coming back for vengeance, and they all better be ready. And what kills me about it is in every loss that we've ever seen from Conor McGregor is he's been gracious in defeat. So he's gone up and he's manned up when it was time to suck it up and say, hey, he was a better man. He's always done it. And you would go and look back at everything that was in the lead-up to the fight and say it was promotion for the fight. He did what he had to do to sell the tickets. So this time you look at what happened in the aftermath of this and you're going, is that really, Connor? Is that who we're really seeing? You know, Is that the guy that has been underneath everything else that we've seen on the surface? throughout the years because, I mean, I've been covering Cotner now since, I believe, 20, uh, 2012 when he came out with the UC and was riding around in, um, you know, Dana's Lamborghini and saying he was riding with the Don on the strip. And you know, that was the Connor that I saw. That it was a fun guy that really enjoyed the zest of life that was uh, always really effervescent and everything that he said. And, you know, obviously not everybody can be that person all of the time. Because I know I, I'm usually pretty bubbly, and when I have a bad day, people know it. But it, it, it's it's something that when when you start to think about it, you wonder like which one was the real face that we were seeing all along? Was it was it the one that was this happy guy that was couldn't wait to enjoy the finer things in life that came out of poverty, or is it the guy that you know is sitting on the canvas just you know angry and frustrated? You know which. Which is the guy that's really Connor, you know, and that's, I think, what has uh, taken away from the mystique of a lot of what he's done in the past with, with what happened at the end here with Dustin. So, I mean, I don't think for fans of Dustin that they would want to see it again. I think at this point, everyone's like, Dustin just needs to move on and fight Charles Oliveira for the belt. But I think for a lot of Connor fans, they feel like Connor could have came back, Connor could have done, you know, the deed, and Connor could have got his vengeance against Poirier, and I think that's the only reason you can sell, or that's the only way you can really sell this fight for a fourth time, but I feel like Dana made the right comment as well in the post-fight saying that he should fight Oliver and Ed. Uh, I think that's what should happen with Dustin Poirier, and then after that's settled, whether Justin has the belt or not, but I'd hate to see Connor get another title shot when he's only had one win in the past, what, like, you know, five, six years, so uh, it, it's one of those things that you have to really kind of evaluate depending on what happens with the Poirier and Oliveira fight in the end. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting too, Heidi, because you you said you wonder which is the real Connor. I have a feeling that maybe both of them are because when things were going well and he was riding around in the strip in Dana's Lamborghini, he was on top of the world, and there's no reason not to be the happy-go-lucky guy. Now he's been humanized. Right. He's lost some fights. Like, even when he lost to Diaz, he was able to avenge it, and he made some different moves in that, and they went down to his weight class more. Now Poirier's beat him twice. Now he's crying that it was an Anderson Silva-type thing. It was just a freak accident. If you couldn't decide for everything that he was saying. He basically said that about Poirier's wife, you know, she's direct messaging me when he says she's DMing me. She's looking fine. He tells her where the after party's going to be, so basically inviting her over there. And then Poirier comes out and says, I'm not worried about what he says about her. She can take care of herself. You said you were going to kill me in the ring. I got a wife. I got a family. I got people in it. You don't say that to people. That's what he was more mad about. At least that's what he says. I have a feeling he's not too happy about the stuff about his wife either. But I just think right now Connor's kind of unraveling. You mentioned the coaches and that. Maybe instead of uh, working on a proper 12, he should get uh, 12 proper coaches or something like that to help him out in the cage next time if and when he goes back. 
Yeah, um, I don't think he'll ever leave John Kavanaugh and the guys that got him started over at Straight Blast Gym in Ireland. I think those are his guys for life now with um, everything that he does as far as training and preparation. But uh, I would think you got to bring in someone at this point. you got to do something to switch it up. I don't see any evolution at all in what you know, the output, it was minimal, the output that we saw from McGregor in this fight. But I just think that if I'm McGregor and I'm healed up because he says we've got six weeks on crutches, he put out a video yesterday, six weeks on the crutches. It was a clean break, so he's lucky there. And then he'll get back to training in a bit. But I think when he does and he's going to face Poirier again, he's really got to get people that can either mimic Poirier around him or he's got to get some really high-level fighters that are willing to come down and train with him, uh, particularly grapplers and particularly wrestlers. Uh, you know, connor has been a stand-up guy most of his career, and that's what he's known for is the striking. But I think it would help him to get with some people that are really experts in grappling, experts in uh, wrestling, and to work that into his game to get on the same level as Poirier um, in those departments and, and really fine-tune what he's able to do on his feet once his legs are better and are literally underneath him again. So all the rehab is going to take a lot out of him. Um, you know, when you start thinking about any fighter, none of them come into any fight healthy. I don't care what you hear. When you hear maybe after a pandemic and there was time for them to heal and be away from the game because you see a lot of, a lot of fighters opt out. A lot of fighters haven't been able to compete because of travel bans and what have you. So when you think about, you know, all of those different things and how he can get other people around him. Yeah, I think it's got to start with his camp and after rehab, getting in the right people. You got it. All right, Heidi, we appreciate the time today, girl. And uh, great uh, coverage on UFC 264. And we'll uh, get with you real soon. Thank you. I'm so glad to come on today. I appreciate you guys. You got it. Appreciate the recap. Heidi Fang, Las Vegas Review Journal. She's a great follow on Twitter at Heidi Fang. And again, LasVegasReviewJournal.com. Uh, she's covering the Raiders. She's covering the uh, the UFC and a plethora of other things as well, too. Yeah, and I want to throw this in, too. I didn't necessarily mean, like, replace the coaches and that. I just mean expand and bring in some new oh. blood and new ideas because cause what he's doing now isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think it's it's part of that. And then it's also just, you know, part of him, you know, the success, not as hungry as a lot of these other fighters. And I'll correlate to what we're talking about with Team USA and these other countries. I mean, again, he's, you know, the, the, the target. You're going to get your best. Whoever goes against Conor McGregor and Dustin Poirier is focused. He's not that little kid that he fought that, that fought uh, Conor McGregor in 2014. And we saw him, you know, back in January. And this is the same Poirier, maybe even a better Poirier, that we saw this fight as well, too. He's just a better fighter, plain and simple, at this point in time of both of their careers. You know, nothing against McGregor. It's just that, again, it's just where he is. He's got a lot of wear and tear on that body. He's got a lot of other business ventures and stuff going on. And, again, he just, you know, it, he's, he's not as good as some of these other guys that he's facing right now. I'm just curious to see what happens in his championship fight because he will fight for the belt next. And it, it, the strange thing is it's not going to have the same hype as this because it's not McGregor. Right. Although, in reality, it's two fighters better than McGregor right now. Yeah, yeah. and I think you will get the pure UFC fans that are going to do And we've seen that before. 
You know, when Khabib has fought uh, other people outside of McGregor after he got after he beat McGregor, you know, the, the, those did tremendous numbers. Mm-hmm. So, you know, looking forward to to more of Dustin Poirier. Although the that fight will not be at Allegiant because media members were asking after that, and Dana was like, mm-hmm. "No, no, is my mic bro- is my mic working here? <sighs> no, because he knows that the name recognition." Connor might be losing, but he's still a bigger draw because he's got that name recognition right, right now. Right, right, absolutely. All right, uh, we turn our attention to NBA Finals. B.J. Armstrong is going to join us next. The Milwaukee Bucks showed up big time. What's on tap for game number four? Bucks, Suns, we got ourselves a series. Hi, this is Bill Beer, and you're listening to the T.C. Martin Show. NBA Finals, we've got three games in the books, and we're going to have to wait till Wednesday for game number four after a very exciting game number three last night, and that means it's time to bring our guy in, the guard, the shooting guard, the point guard, the guard. How about it? BJ Armstrong joins us. May the funk be with you, my friend. May the funk be with you. May the funk be with you. I appreciate it. Game three is in the books. And uh, it's always a pleasure to be back on the show. All right, BJ. I, I was just happy that I knew that the team in green was the Bucks this time. Y- yeah, but <laughs> we, I was hoping they would wear the white at home, but they did wear the white on the road, so it's like, ugh. Yeah, at least it wasn't blue with watery numbers and letters you. or something. Thank you. But and and the floor looked good. We had the we had the green and the white yeah. on the floor. I was happy. But of course they're going to get you know for the most time they they get it right there in Milwaukee and that was a a great atmosphere. I felt really great for those fans. And again, spending time back there, I could really resonate with that building, those fans, and I was I was pumped up and. I don't know. I mean, it was nice in Phoenix in games one and two, but it just seemed really cool last night, especially with the Bucks. They're back against the wall, figuring they were going to show up last night. And not only they showed up, but they delivered. So I don't know, BJ, what did your eyes see last night, man? What did you think of game three? Well, I, I thought it was very well played. Uh, overall, I think the series has been very well played. I mean, for these teams, a lot of these guys, for many of these guys, this is their first time in the NBA Finals. Some of these players, this is their first time in the playoffs, right? Talking about the Phoenix Suns, and we forget how young this team is. You know, DeAndre Ayton, this is his first playoff experience. You, you know, Devin Booker, um, you know, and these guys, Mikael Bridges, you can go on and on down the list. I think only Jay Crowder is the only one that has actually played in the NBA Finals. And I think overall, the response and the way they've played, it's been a well-played three games. You know, I, I think the thing that stands out most is the, the brilliance and dominance of Giannis. You know, Giannis is, you know, he's just a very, he's a unique talent, first of all. He's, you know, he's dominating. And then just a couple weeks ago, you know, I thought possibly the season had ended and who knew, who knew what the severity of that injury was uh, in the Atlanta Hawks series. And here we are, you know, a couple weeks later, and he's running around and, He's got back-to-back 40-point games with 10 rebounds, and you're going, what is this guy feeling? You know, he's doing all of this. Supposedly, he can't shoot consistently. Supposedly, he has a lot of holes in his games, but you just see his, you just see his evolution, and uh, I'm really intrigued by him. And I thought it was a great game in grade theory for them to bounce back, recover once they go home. You can see what home court does matter in the playoffs which was a little different than we viewed last year in the bubble. So uh, I'm really looking forward to game four. 
You know, talking about Giannis, uh, you know, he looked like he was injured. He asked out of the game about three and a half minutes into it. And they were showing him the sideline, and he really wasn't, you know, giving anything away. And then we saw him get up, go to the tunnel for a little bit. And I think there was a little bit of concern because you never see him, you know, ask out, to, you know, uh, that early in a game. But it, you just had the feeling that, you know, so much was on him. He was carrying, you know, the weight of this team. And so goes Giannis, so goes the, this Bucks team. And especially the way the Suns have played the first two games and really the way the Suns have played throughout these playoffs here. So I think, you know, Giannis, it really impressed me with just, you know, pain, playing through pain, you know, playing through all of the, I guess, uh, media scrutiny, the fan scrutiny about him and, and his shooting woes and that sort of thing. And he just checked all the boxes last night, BJ. I mean, the guy was phenomenal at the free throw line as well, too. I mean, he was 13 for 17 at the free throw line, back to back, 40 plus games. And talk about the guys who he joined on this list in back-to-back 40 games, consecutive games, uh, Michael Jordan, Jerry West, Rick Barry, Shaquille O'Neal, and LeBron James. Uh, that was a very impressive performance by Giannis considering everything he's gone through. Yeah, that is an Im- impressive list. And, uh, you know, this young man, he, he, he is a very unique player. And, you know, when you start comparing, and I was just thinking of the names on that list, you go, this is the first time we've seen Giannis, a player like that. You know, he's not just a, a scorer. He's not just a jump shooter. He's a low post player or a two guard or what have you. He's a, he's a very unique player, and you can see his impact on the game, not only offensively, this is what we're talking about here currently, but defensively. I mean, he is spectacular, a spectacular player. I mean, he's, you know, he's a defensive player of the year as well, and he certainly – if he's not the best, he's the second best defender, you know, because he can block shots, he can defend on the perimeter, he literally can defend all five positions. So I'm just very impressed with the, the, the energy he expends during the course of a game because he, he plays so hard on the offensive end. He, he gives you the same multiple efforts on the defensive end. And, you know, maybe he just, you know, he's always breathing so hard. When you watch the guy play, you know, he's always breathing hard. You know, a lot of times you'll see these magnificent athletes and they make it look easy, you know. They look like they're hardly breathing or they're, you know, they're hardly winded. But, you know, he plays hard. And then uh, he just plays so hard. So I'm not sure what was going on there at the early stages of the game, but whatever it was, he was able to recover. And uh, certainly he was brilliant the rest of the way. You know, BJ, you mentioned how um, home cooking has meant so much because it does seem like both teams feel much more comfortable on their home base. The one thing that I'm curious about in this, because it's 2-1 to one right now, but we haven't necessarily seen a real nail-biter. We haven't seen a close game. From what you've seen of both of these teams, is one set up more in crunch time if it is a two-point game with, you know, 30 seconds to go or something to get that victory and have that experience? Because although we've seen both teams win their games, we haven't seen that game that comes on to is it going to overtime or something like that. Do you see an edge experience-wise or something else if it is a two-point point nail biting game well if, if, if we did get to the last four minutes of the uh, of the game where the game is tied or it's a you know a one point or two point game I think it's very obvious where the ball is going to go if you're in Milwaukee it's going to go to Giannis in some fashion right if he's not playing in isolation he's going to be running screen roll with Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday I think Giannis is the key and he's shown that he is the first second and third option you know he's been the only player for them that has 
played fairly well in all three games. And uh, the first two games, the Phoenix Suns, they were able to play at their pace. They they were at home. They played much faster game. And then you saw Milwaukee able to slow the game down a little bit. They made a nice adjustment with putting Chris Middleton on the ball. And he was he made some very good decisions there in game three. And uh, he really kind of uh, controlled the game and put Giannis in different situations. So um, I think if there's going to be a game to be had for Phoenix, I think this is the game. Um, I, you know, I, I said it before the game, you know, last night, I said, you know, beating a team three times in a row in a series, that's very, very tough. Um, and so I thought they were, I thought they could win. I thought Milwaukee would go home and, and, and find a way to win game three, but game four to me is up for grabs. And this is always the game now where, you know, Milwaukee knows they got to win this game to stay in the series, because if you, if you lose now, you're going to be down three, one going back to Phoenix. So Milwaukee has to win this game. I think they understand that responsibility. But now, you know, Phoenix says, okay, we got a little taste. We're on the road. We got our routine down. And if we're going to win a game, I think game four is it. So um, I think Phoenix has more options to go to. Uh, you saw the big fella, DeAndre Aiden, started off the game very well. Um, so you can, you know you can play screen roll with him, which is great. And then, of course, you got Devin Booker. I expect him to bounce back. Um, and you got Chris Paul, who's been absolutely sensational on the other side of the ball as well. So um, I think if it gets to a post game, those are going to be the characters that will be involved, and then we'll see who makes shots. But you know, um, you know, right now I think you know Milwaukee is feeling good about Game Four, and and uh, I think Phoenix should be feeling good about you know what we know what we got to do to win this game as well. All right, B.J. Armstrong joins us, the three-time NBA champ, knows something about winning NBA titles, those three championships with the Chicago Bulls. You mentioned DeAndre Ayton. He only played five minutes in the second half. And when Phoenix was in this game in the first half, I mean, it was all about DeAndre Ayton. And, of course, Chris Paul, you mentioned him as well, too. But DeAndre Ayton finished 8-for-11. And I don't know what happened there in the second half. And I know some people say, well, foul trouble. No, I don't understand why he only played five minutes in the second half. Well, he, he got in foul trouble, and uh, I think he had three fouls at the end of at the end of the first half, and then he get, picks up an early foul there in the third quarter, I believe. And uh, so that, that was a game changer for for Phoenix. That was a game changer for uh, for Milwaukee. But the interesting thing about it was Phoenix they go small and they rally. I mean, they rally, and uh, and uh, I was doing the game last night, and I remember uh, that dunk. I think by Cam Johnson, Cameron Johnson, he had that dunk, that and right. one dunk, and that seemed to energize the Phoenix Suns team. Right? They they were kind of playing very lethargic. They didn't really have anything going, and all of a sudden that gave them a little burst of energy, and then they cut it down to like six. Uh, but give Milwaukee credit; they they withstood the charge. They held their composure. They made shots, and they started shooting the ball terrific from, from distance, you know, in particular Drew Holiday. So, um, you know, we'll see how they play it out. I, I think now with the, the injury to uh, Dario Saric, I think that's going to, you know, limit their rotations, uh, what they're going to do. And, uh, but without question, if they are to win the next game or win this series, DeAndre Ayton is going to be – He's got to stay out of foul trouble without question. So we'll see how, the, how this plays out. But 
Um, I expect, you know, the coaching staff there for Phoenix to maybe start going zone or 2-3 or whatever to protect DeAndre Ayton because clearly they need him to be on the court just so they can rebound the basketball because without him on the court, you know, Giannis just goes berserk. And uh, he's probably going to go berserk anyway, but at least DeAndre Ayton can provide some resistance. And Devin Booker, 3 for 14. And we've seen Booker... Uh, do this before and have an off game. But last night he was definitely off uh, and he had some pretty good looks. You know, we've talked about what Phoenix did so well in those first two games it, with the pick and roll and taking care of the basketball. And the Bucks really played that very, very badly. What adjustments did you see Milwaukee do to Phoenix? Or, or was it just Giannis and, just, it, and was it just, you know, Drew Holiday, what they did offensively? Or did you see the Bucks tighten up things and make some of those adjustments uh, defensively? Well, uh, you know, it was a couple of things in particular they did uh, very well. And, and uh, if you watched the game last night, first thing, they put Chris Middleton on the ball and allowed him to be the initiator, right? They took Drew Holiday off well, just for his terms, they took him off to being the, the point guard, and they allowed him to be a scorer. And then they put the ball handling duties into Chris Middleton. Now, that's interesting because the, the – the, and the reason that's interesting is because now you have the ball in your, you know, your second best player's hand, and you can run screen roll with your best player, and that's going to provide some problems. So because more, more times than not, you're not going to switch off the primary ball handler to go on to Giannis. And when they did switch, Mikael Bridges, he, he's not a big enough body to handle to Giannis. So that was the first thing. It provided them and gave them some stability on the offensive end and forced and kind of dictated what they were going to do and how the team was going to defend. So let's, think, let's look out for that, first of all, for that little action there. What is Phoenix going to do to counter that? Because Phoenix was dictating offensively and defensively what they were going to do in the first two games. And then the second thing that happened was they got a little home cook and Bobby Portis was terrific off the bench. They really haven't had any players to come off the bench and provide anything, let alone a spark like Bobby uh, did in the last game, not only to give him good energy, but he gave him good offensive play. I mean, I think he was in double figures last night. And that's a big thing for them because they haven't had any stability at all or any kind of contribution off the bench. So uh, we'll see what Phoenix is going to do. I think Phoenix is going to have to come out and try to establish what they did a good job. You know, DeAndre Aiden, they got him involved early. He was terrific. But the rest of the guys didn't make shots, in particular Devin Booker. And a, and a great player like Devin Booker, I don't expect him to have two bad games in a row. So I know he's going to play better. And uh, But we have to see what they're going to do on the defensive end because defensively they've been very good all year, and that's been the staple uh, of their team. That's kind of really been one of the principles of the team. Defensively, they can get stops, and they weren't able to get any type of consistency there in Game 3. I know you've kind of uh, touched on this a little bit with what you've been saying in this, but if you are Phoenix right now, even though you lost that game and you lost it by 20 points, I would think they have, that they have to feel supremely confident going into this game. You mentioned Booker didn't have a very good game. Aiton got himself in foul trouble. Milwaukee had a contribution off the bench that they don't normally have. Giannis was sensational from the free throw line as well. If I'm Phoenix, I'm looking at it going, all those things aren't going to happen again. That was kind of the perfect storm for Milwaukee. If we just stay the course and play our game, there's no reason whatsoever why we can't win a game here. Oh, and by the way, we got an extra day to get healthy and ready and get our minds straight as well. So it, I would think that Phoenix is going to come out ready to go in this next game. I know Milwaukee's going to as well in front of their home fans, but uh, boy, Phoenix, you can't think that things could go much worse for them in that last game. 
I, you know, I, I think that's great. I think traditional, the traditional way of thinking, tr- traditional conventional wisdom would say you're absolutely right. However, I would caution this, guys. You know, this Phoenix Suns team, they're a very young team. And you just never know how young people are going to respond under duress, okay? Things are going well for Phoenix. They win the first two games. Everything is great. They're playing like veteran players. I mean, you know, I can't forget that, you know, Devin Booker is only 24. DeAndre Aiden's only 22. And what I'm concerned about more than anything is if, the, if Milwaukee is able to tie this game up, anything can happen in a three-game series. And the reason I say that is because Giannis is without question the best player on the floor. Giannis is the best player, no matter how you slice or the dice. He, you know, you can debate whether who has the better team. Giannis is the best player. And when you have a player like Giannis, anything is possible. He is capable of winning one more game in Phoenix and one more game at home all by himself. I mean, when you start scoring 40 points back-to-back, it's not like Phoenix doesn't know he's playing. <laughs> okay? I mean, I mean, this is like, this is very rare. What we're seeing right now is historical. He is clearly the best player right now in the NBA, if you ask me, without question. And he's coming off of an injury. So he's not even up 100%. And he's getting stronger and stronger, and he's now in this kind of rhythm where you're saying great players can be great. And he, he is certainly capable of winning and taking over this series if need be. So I don't know how this Phoenix team is going to respond if they don't win tomorrow night. I think uh, – not tomorrow night, Wednesday night. So I think it's very important for their psyche – because they are a young group. This is a young group, right? You, you, you really only have Bridges, I mean, uh, Jay Crowder and Chris Paul as the veterans. Everyone else, this, this is their first time in the playoffs. No, I, so, I totally agree with you, man. I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah, and, so and what I we've think, seen with Milwaukee, yeah. we've seen that before. I mean, they're a fantastic home team. And, again, that's why it was pretty predictable what was going you know, to happen in game number three. And it wouldn't surprise me. You know, again, and real quick, BJ, I mean, you talk about the young players. I wanted to ask you this. I mean, playing in an environment like that for a young player, that's got to feel uh, nerve-rattling or distraction to some degree, don't you think? Oh, yeah, without question. You can see how these guys were shooting the lights out in the bubble, right? They were shooting lights out. And I kept saying, wow, are these guys that good shooters today as compared to yesteryear? Well, yes and no. When you put them in these home arenas, I mean, you got 20,000 in the building. And by the way, guys, the Deer District had 25,000 people outside of the building. So this is the type of environment that you got to perform. And that's a whole different, you know, that's a whole different set of circumstances. So, uh, you know, home court does matter. It's going to be a great game. I think this game is made for Phoenix. I think if they're going to win it, it's important for them to win this game because if they don't, I think it's anybody's series. You talk about a three-game series, and all of a sudden now, you know, you don't want to play against those type of players like Giannis. There's really no answer for him. So, um, you know, we'll see. But I'm excited about game four. All right, real quick, BJ, we got to get rolling here, and I want to get more thoughts from you on this maybe later in the week. Team USA here in Las Vegas loses to Nigeria. Oh, man, yeah. how much time we got? I know. How much time do I, we got? That's <laughs> why we're going to have to table this for another time. Oh, but I, I wanted a quick take from you on, on what you saw with that. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you this. You know, the rest of the, you know, everyone says, you know, oh, USA isn't bad. No, that's not the case. 
the rest of the world has caught up. These guys are good. These guys are for real. There's no more intimidation. And we're to get used to it because it's not going to be a cakewalk. I know we remember what happened in 92, but the rest of the world, in particular in basketball, these are some great players. Just say this real quick, guys. The MVP of the NBA this year was Jokic, foreign-born player. Defensive player of the year this year was Rudy Gobert, foreign-born player. You, then you got Joel Embiid. Uh, you got Luka Doncic. Guys, this is where we're at. We're talking about a global game. We're here we are, and now uh, we're going to have to be ready. It's, it's not going to be as easy as it has been in the past. Not even, exactly. And for that reason that you said with the global game, the superstars that we have, but all of those guys you just mentioned are playing for their respective countries, and this is the worst USA roster that we have seen. Sure, we got Kevin Durant, but we don't have Steph Curry. Do not have Kawhi Leonard. Uh, do not have James Harden. Do not have LeBron James. Yeah, it'd be a different story. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if USA does not win the gold medal. But and, to be continued with that. And we just spent a whole segment talking about Giannis. Yeah, exactly. There's another guy. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Thank I you. Mean, Greece looking been, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, things yeah. are looking. Things are looking good. And real quick, guys, and we have to hear in the states. The, the international game is a totally different game than the NBA game. So, yes, we may have more accomplished players that are play, accomplishing in the NBA, but the international game, that FIBA game, is a different game. It really doesn't matter, and that's what those guys know. That yes. 40 minutes is totally different than the 48 minutes you, we're traditionally or conditioned to watch here in the States. All right, and yeah, with uh, the three-point line being a little bit closer, it makes it easy, you know, for the uh, for the lesser players as and well, too. And the wide too. lane. Yeah, all that. Yeah, again, it does, doesn't make the rule, it doesn't make it more difficult, it makes it easier. So there you go. All right, brother, uh, to be continued, uh, we got a little Funkadelic on the way out of here, BJ Armstrong. Oh, man, please give it to me. Give me the funk. Give me the funk. <laughs> there he is. He's BJ Armstrong. Oh. Funking it up here on the T.C. Martin Show. We're going to have you back this week. We're not going to wait a week my man because we got to talk about this USA Australia here in Vegas tonight game three Wednesday night with the Buck Suns take care my man all right take care all right uh, Paul Buck Power Smith we'll see how much he knows about the funk Smith Stewart whatever his name is are, are, are you saying if you don't like what you hear here get the funk out there you go get the funk out Conor McGregor get the funk out Parte Florenzi, eccolo il cross tagliato di testa che Itaca! Gaaa! il magnifico! Il magnifico! Il magnifico rettore! Live! Boom! Boom! Shake, shake! The room! In the entertainment capital of the world! What a strike! What a goal! What a comeback! What a game! There are no words to describe it! The TC Martin Show. Léger hors jeu, mais cette fois-ci, il n'y en a pas pour Marco Reus. Très fort devant le but. Prescription from the doctor, T.C. Martin. El largo pifio. Messi la tiene. Messi, Messi, Messi. Ahí está Iniesta. Gol! 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 Cerebro! Cerebro! Cerebro Iniesta! The doctor is now in. Flying by today. 
Why? Because jam-packed sports weekend, exciting weekend. Who says these are the dog days? This is a dead time. Look at everything that happened. I mean, you got Euro 2020. You got Wimbledon, the, the final there. And, of course, we've got the NBA finals. we got the Olympic Games happening. We've got these exhibition games here in Las Vegas. Not to mention concerts galore here in town. Major League Baseball. Oh, by the way, the All-Star Games tomorrow. Oh, by the way, Jose Altuve went deep. Had his shirt ripped off. Six runs in the bottom of the ninth. One of the greatest comebacks of all time. Dusty Baker said yesterday, it's one of the, it is the greatest comeback he's been involved with as a player or a manager. As the Astros, who basically were shut out in uh, games Friday and Saturday against the Yankees. 7-2, bottom of the ninth, and the uh, Astros come back and score six times to defeat the Yankees yesterday. So, And nice to see somebody with their shirt taken off but keeping their pants on. This is true. <laughs> not like this is Italians. Uh, uh-oh. Our next guest is not going to want to hear about the Italians. That's right, because the Italians were victorious yesterday, Euro 2020. Even though it's 20, 21, I always have to say that, but uh, we don't have to say that anymore. Italy and England played to a one-all draw through regulation, through extra time, and it went to the shootout or the ball on spot. There you if go. If you want to do that. And, the BOS. And, and, and England, it's funny because England scores like in the first few minutes of the game, and all of a sudden they're actually like, well, you know, we thought we might go to shootout nil-nil, but, yeah. you know, now England certainly... And I loved it. Even when Italy scored, they go, well, Italy's got themselves back in the game. They were down one. Yes. Were they ever actually out? They were down one. Yes, yes. And England scored in the second minute. And boom, it's like, okay, what's going to happen here? But then if you're rooting for Italy, you're saying, okay, there's plenty of time here. And Man, I hope so. Yeah. Two minutes into a 90-minute yeah. game. And then, but it took them to the 67th minute before they scored to tie it at 1-1. But you could see right before that, especially in the second half, how Italy was really starting to build the momentum. But neither team had a whole bunch of shots on goal. No. And so you had the feeling when it was 1-1, yeah, we're, we're going to PKs here. BOSs, PKs, whatever. But I'll tell you who's not happy right now. Our good friend, Paul Stewart. Paul Buck. Power Stewart is sitting in jolly old England right now, and just days ago he was ecstatic with his Tampa Bay Lightning, and then now, and he was so excited about getting ready for the final with England and Italy, and England was a favorite, but now it's dreary old England. I bet it's raining there in England today. Paul Buck Power Stewart, what is happening, my friend? Well, thank you, TC. Yeah, the view over here in England is we've got a country that's in mourning this morning because this whole reaching the final is only the second time England have ever reached the final of a major tournament. The last one was 55 years ago. And, you know, everyone was expecting great things. It it dominated not just the back pages, the sports pages, but the front pages of all the news. And, of course, then to lose on penalties, well, right now this whole country's in mourning. So, Paul, we hear the, especially in Europe there, and the traditional soccer countries, they just hate it when a game goes to the penalty kicks. But here in America, they love the shootout style and, you know, the sudden death and all that other type of thing. And you don't really get that in soccer for the most part. How do you guys feel about that? Is it just like uh, you hang your head and you say, you know, really, this isn't a a true winner? Because we hear that a lot over there. 
I think the, the problem it was, TC, many years ago, and this is going back into the 60s and 70s, they didn't really have penalties. You just, you had like a replay. You replayed the game three days later. But you can't really do that in major tournaments. You can't bring everyone back on a Wednesday for a replayed match. So penalties was the only way to go. And as you know, England do not have a very good record in penalty shootouts. We lost to the Germans so many times. So when we got to penalties last night, there was very much a sort of resignation that it's all going to go wrong. But England had their chances in that game. The problem was is they went 1-0 up, as you said, after two minutes. They then spent 88 minutes just defending, thinking we can see it out. And it doesn't work like that. Well, it's. It, I, I also found it interesting that during the extra time, right towards the end when the England coach brought in a couple players, just getting them ready for the shootout, and then both of them missed their penalties. One had the wide open net and hit it off the outside of the post. The other one, it was saved. And I thought, okay, I understand these are guys that you think are your best penalty uh, kick guys, and you want them in the game for that, but they haven't played the game at all. They don't have a rhythm of the game. They haven't really seen the goalie and faced him. And it's almost like, you know, a coach looks brilliant when that works, but when it doesn't work, is he getting some of the blame for making that move late in the game now at this point, considering that they missed and they lost the penalty kicks 3-2? I think, I think that's what sports radio shows are there for, Frank, is to second guess. And, of course, social media is full of wannabe managers today. I think what's very interesting over here compared to American sports is – when a player misses a penalty, we don't castigate them in the press and blame them forevermore. You know, Gareth Southgate, who's the England manager now, he missed a penalty in the 1996 Euros. But it's not something, you know, we, we blame him for because we understand the press situation. Now, very much in American sports, and think back to the 86 World Series and Bill Buckner, it didn't cost them the series, it cost them one game. He had to live with that error for the rest of his life. So I think it's very much that... When Whereas you guys will hang a mistake on a player, we don't because we very much accept the situation and we know how difficult it is and they've done their best. Yes, and Bill Buckner only got to rid himself after appearing in Curb Your Enthusiasm when he got to be able to catch a baby <laughs> out, out of a rooftop. I don't know if you saw that or if you get that. I know you get HBO over there, uh, Paul. So I hope you, you saw that episode. Fantastic, Larry David and Curb Your Enthusiasm. I, I always felt very sorry for Bill Buckner. I mean, I love that 86 Mets team. I mean, they were some tremendous characters. But as I say, it's just a real thing that he had to live with that stigma. He was a tremendous baseball player for many, many years. But people know him for that one mistake. But, yeah, I mean, England, it, we lost it on penalties. I think in extra time, England had their chances. They played better in that period. But Italy were the better team yesterday. They were the best team in the tournament. And maybe, you know, I'm being very pragmatic as a journalist, List, I have no regrets over how England played, what the manager did, or what the final result was. They were the better team. Yeah, and here's the thing, and just to, you and I talked about this before, Frank, before we came on, and I was watching this game. When I saw them make those substitutions, I'm going, what is he doing? I mean, that is coaching or managing, as you want to say there. And when you bring in a guy in who you know he's coming in for penalty kicks, but he's coming in the final minute of regulation, there's no flow. He's been sitting for two-plus hours. And don't forget Saka. 
He's a 19-year-old. You're putting a 19-year-old in the number five position there where everything is on his shoulders. I had no confidence in him, and I don't know how you felt about that, Paul, but, but the way they made that lineup there and then inserting those guys in for penalty kicks, no, that, that was a mistake, and I think that was a big mistake that Southgate needs to be uh, questioned on. I, I, don't, I don't think it's difficult, really. I mean, it is such a precious situation to take a penalty. You know the whole country is watching you. And yesterday, that was the third most watched television programme in the history of British television after the 1966 World Cup and Princess Diana's funeral. That's how many people were watching it yesterday. So I think the players, they know the situation. They know the pressure that's on them. Even the Italians weren't taking good penalties. So I just think it's the pressure situation. And I think if you had an NBA playoff that suddenly came down to players taking free shots to decide an NBA title, you would see some of the best free shot players in the world making air shots. Uh, Paul, I, I don't know where you're getting your top three. What are you talking? Are you talking about the twit of the year? Monty Python's twit of the year episode is not in the top three. Come on, man. No, no, it really was. So, yeah, it was the third most watched program in the history of British television. But we did have one interesting story that I wanted to throw past you guys to see what your view was, was when England played Denmark in the semi-final, there was a woman who pulled what we call a... She pulled a sickie from work. She took the day off work, pretending she was ill. Well, she got spotted on the TV coverage at the game. So next day, when she went into work, still claiming she'd been ill, she was fired from her job. Was the guy right to fire her, or should he have let her get away with it? What's, what's your viewpoint on that? Now that? That was during the final or the Denmark the sem- game? The semifinal, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was in the semifinal. I, yeah. like, I like the word, the term sicky, he said. Say that again, Paul. She, yeah. she, was, she was sicky, huh? She pulled a sickie. She pulled a sickie. Taking your ill, yes. Yeah, I say uh, no. She should not be fired. I mean, just because she was spotted on TV. I mean, but she wasn't. uh, You know, that one that was wearing like a pumpkin face or something like that or whatever, right? Where the guy was like berating her. Did she have her face uh, painted like the flag or what? Or is she in the Queen Elizabeth uh, costume? Who was that lady? Who was that one pulling the sickie? No, she was just a normal fan. But can you imagine now driving around Vegas or listening to this show? There are a whole bunch of lawyers who are now saying to themselves, I'll represent her. I'll get her job back for her. Yes. <laughs> yes. No, I mean, and, and what type, uh, type of business was it that, that she worked at? And this, yeah, this guy is wrong. I mean, come on. Nah, you don't fire her for it that. It is interesting. I mean, I mean, the general viewpoint here is if she'd gone to him and said, I've got a ticket to the semifinal, can I go? He, he would have let her go. I think it's because think? she lied about it was, uh... was the story. But that, that made the press leading up to the final. That was quite a big story over here. Well, to me, it just sounds like a female version of Ferris Bueller's day off, took the day off, went there. If, if she would have done it during the final, I would buy the sickie a little bit more because they lost and she would probably still be sick over it. But, but she wasn't but, working. But, it was but, a Sunday night. Right. But I'm saying, but yeah. since she did it after the Denmark game, she should have been euphoric and happy afterwards. So she wasn't sick anymore. But uh, so, so I'm not really sure how to play that. But the bottom line to me is her face is all over right now. She's a huge England supporter strike now while the the rod is hot. I mean, this is the best time to go out and get another job. Hey, we take English soccer seriously, and we're going to give this woman a job because go England. There you go. I mean, right now her face is all over. She, she, She can go someplace new and get a raise. 
<laughs> it's, it's quite interesting that the yesterday we had the final of the men's singles mm. at Wimbledon. One of the biggest sporting events we have here. Noko Djokovic won his 20th title, tied the all-time record for wins. And to be honest, no one even noticed or cared because all everyone cared about was the build-up to the Euro final. It, you, you really can't... The only way I could describe it would, would be if, if Nevada Las Vegas reached the final four. You know, if Nevada Las Vegas reached, say, the final four and everyone started in, you know, in, in Nevada started watching the game, you know, and the whole focus was on it. Well, just imagine that on a national scale where every bar, every restaurant, every pub, you know, friends are getting together in houses. It just everybody was watching that game yesterday. It was a national event. And unfortunately, it, it didn't go the way we wanted it. Well, you know, it was weird, too, because you mentioned the Wimbledon uh, men's final. And, yeah, Djokovic wins his 20th, ties Nadal and Federer. If he wins the U.S. Open, he'll beat both of them with his 21st. Also, he will win the Grand Slam in one calendar year, which hasn't been done since, I believe, Rod, uh, Rod Laver. But I thought mm-hmm. it was interesting during that match because I did watch it because I'm a huge tennis fan. I got up early to see it. I was actually surprised that Berrettini was getting as much love as he was in that match, being from Italy since England was playing Italy later on in that in that match. Now I think it's because the tennis fans just wanted to see more tennis, but I've yeah. also I, I've never seen Djokovic get that much love before either. But uh, I, I found it interesting. I thought that they would be more against Berrettini because. They were playing England, uh, Italy later on that day. But here's my take with this, and you, and you know this as well. As every time we watch a final or a meaningful match, who does the crowd root for? They root for the underdog. There's no country really allegiance whatsoever. They always root for the underdog. And I don't know if that's because they want to stay there for four and a half or five hours, but they always do that as long as I can remember watching this tournament when I was a kid all the way through. And uh, so that really didn't surprise me. But that's what was weird about it because it was about 50-50. Because I would say they were more vocal for Djokovic, especially early. Yes. But then they wanted more tennis later on. Right. But, I mean, Djokovic was even looking around like, wait, yeah. Now all of a sudden you guys love me? Yeah, yeah. And, re- and remember that after the semifinal match where you know, Djokovic was uh, you know, talking to the crowd, he got a little bit of emotional, and they go, oh, we love you, we love you, and this and that. It's like, wow. And then all of a sudden watching the final, it's like, now they're going against him. But, yeah, they seem to do that. They rally behind the guy, either who's the underdog or start, starting to make a comeback. Yeah. I think that that's absolutely right, TC. I mean, Wimbledon tennis, the, the, the actual centre court is not very big. It seats about 15,000 people. You really are all on top of each other. I mean, I've been there many times, and it's quite amazing how compact it all is. But you're right. People want to see a good tennis match. So, yes, if Andy Murray was playing, everyone's going to be behind Andy Murray because he's the home favourite. And even the, the other players accept that. You know, you get that home support. But really, the British tennis fans just appreciate good tennis and yes they root for the underdog so there's no kind of bad guys there's no kind of particular favorites and i think you know if if the player shows an appreciation for the fans the fans will warm to them and i think that happens in all tennis events whether it be flushing meadow or wimbledon and I think we saw that, too, with Djokovic after the match was over. They, it was just like the semifinal. They, they love him, they love him, they love him. They just wanted to see, 
you know, quality tennis. I think they just don't like to leave that stadium. <laughs> yeah, and we should mention, too, Ashley Barty, uh, you know, winning her championship there and uh, beating Pliskova. Yeah. That was a really good match. It was back and forth a lot. So, you know, there was a lot of upsets, and it was kind of a strange Wimbledon in a lot of ways. But I think when all was said and done, the two best players won. And, I mean, I don't know if you can ask for much more than that. But, yeah, what, what Djokovic did was just absolutely incredible. It amazes me how none of the younger players can still touch the top three when they're healthy. And obviously right now Federer and Nadal, they're, they're having some health issues in that, but Djokovic is still carrying the torch. And now with 20 championships, now the question is not if he's going to get more than Nadal and Federer, but it's almost like how many more will he get because this guy's still playing the best tennis of his career. Yeah, I mean, Federer pretty much announced this. that was probably going to be his last Wimbledon. I think he knows he's reached the end of the road. I think Andy Murray will play the Olympics, and I think he'll hang his racket up. So, I mean, he, he's done everything he possibly can for British tennis. So, I think in a couple of years, you will see a passing of the guard, Frank. But at the moment, yeah, Djokovic is, is the number one. And, and good luck to him. He's been a tremendous champion. And, you know, it's hard not to like someone like that. All right, Paul Buckpower-Stewart joins us from England talking about the day after England loses the Euro Cup championship game to Italy. And, and Paul, going back to that, we heard today that the Prime Minister was um, incensed, I guess, in, uh, about uh, some of the, the comments that uh, fans were yeah. hurling at uh, the England players, uh, especially the minority players. And he was uh, condemning all you know the British uh, you know fans for 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 doing this. Talk a little bit about that story here. And it seemed like the teammates, his teammates, you know, they they were consoling these guys and everything for missing those penalty kicks. But uh, we know that there is racism uh, there. It's pretty rampant in England. What is the story right now today? Yeah, I mean, that is a big story, TC, and there's no place for that kind of behaviour on any side of the either side of the Atlantic at all. So, yes, unfortunately, the three penalties that were missed were missed by, you know, members of the ethnic community, players. So there will be some Neanderthal fans who hide behind social media who think they can get away with making racist comments. Now, this afternoon, one of the people who's made these comments has apparently been exposed and named, and, and again, He's been fired from his job. So, of course, he immediately claims my account was hacked. Isn't it funny how all these people always have their accounts hacked when they get found out for doing something like that? That there is no place for that kind of abuse in any sport. And, you know, not only will all the other players come out against it and politicians come out against it, everybody should come out against it. And, yes, name and shame these people in any sport for any kind of abuse like that. And, and I'd be the first one to stand up and criticize them. Yeah, Rashford, Sancho, and, and Saka just uh, yeah. you know vilified. And just it, it's too bad. And especially when both teams – uh, prior to the kickoff, you know, took a knee to show their support, you know, for for yeah, the you know, solidarity of reunion, exactly know, it, united it, behind the front. And like you just, said, the one kid's like eighteen, nineteen years 19 old, eighteen years old. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, there are still some fans who boo players when they take the knee. Yeah. So they'll cheer, they'll they'll sing the English national anthem, they'll boo the Italian or the foreign anthem, and then when players take a knee, they'll start booing them. Now, unfortunately, you're always going to have those. 
kind of, and the word I use is Neanderthals, people who have not evolved into real human beings. And unfortunately, the only way you can deal with people like that is expose them for the morons that they are and put them in the spotlight and show them there's no place to hide and that kind of behavior will not be tolerated in any form of life. You know, one of my favorite uh, words that you guys use over there, Paul, is hooligans. And, and, and I believe there was a hooligan that ran on the pitch yesterday. Now, this is, it was like early second half. And of course, we're watching on, on uh, ESPN and we're not actually seeing it. ESPN, ABC, and they don't show it. So do they show the hooligan running on the streaker or whatever happened yesterday? Do they show that on BBC One or do they cut away? Uh-huh. I didn't even know about that till I read it today. And apparently he's just some wannabe reality TV star trying to get some publicity. And like the guy who did it at the Super Bowl, I've got no time for people like that. And to be honest, I think they should be put up against the wall and people could be able to take penalties at them. (laughs) (laughs) Except except we'd probably miss. This is true. This is true. Ball the spot against a brick wall or something. That's, That's what Paul Stewart is. Is advocating for so, if if you're kicking one of those penalties, what spot are you trying to hit? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, seeing as my football skills were terrible, and my, my father played professional football for Tottenham, but he never passed any abilities on to me. I was terrible at football. So that means you were a hotspur. You were a junior hotspur. Yeah, I mean, they should be my team, really. But no, I follow England. But as you know, I follow American sports. And can we please get back to some celebrations that have been happening? No, no, no. I'm not done with hooligan talk here. Quite. I want to know who this Ham and Ager was. What's the story about the guy that ran on the pitch? Because I'm always curious because we don't get a chance to see it. The guy delayed the play play for about three minutes yesterday. And we saw the faces on some of the Italian guys. They're like laughing at the guy. I want to know uh, what he was doing. I mean, Paul, you are a guy there, Paul Stewart. Like about a $500 fine and probably a week suspended jail sentence. A slap on the wrist. Okay, there you go. All right, what do you want to talk about? You want to talk about boat parades in Tampa Bay, you know, some 4,000 miles away from you? Is that what you want to talk about? Well, I mean, as I said, I mean, last week I was predicting the Lightning were going to win in, in Game 4 with a shutout. I was just two days late, but it happened in Game 5. And once again, another championship for one of my Tampa Bay sports teams. I'm just so looking forward to flying back across the Atlantic and buying all this championship merchandise. It's going to cost me a fortune. What do you mean? They have this thing called Amazon. Don't you get that over there or what? Or just talk to your boy TJ Reeves, <laughs> except be careful of what you order from him because you're going to be getting something that uh, is a, coming from a guy named Dick and uh, has a bunch of dick talk on, on these yeah. t-shirts. So don't, don't be one is the, is the motto. So. Right, right. Yeah. So be careful what you're going to order from your boy TJ Reeves. Yeah, I mean, I've got material. sports merchandise here. I mean, looking around my office, I've got quite a bit. But, yeah, I mean, I just want to be able to get out there and see American sporting events again. And I'm just hoping, say, someday soon that the, you know, the travel restrictions will be lifted and I'll be able to come back out there because I want to go and see some baseball, some football and some hockey. You know, on a, I don't know if it's a serious note or not, but Kucherov, after they won the championship, we found <laughs> out that he was playing injured the whole time. Kind of takes a, a flyer at Mark Andre Fleury and some other people here and changes things around. And now he's going on the boat and he's got the Super Bowl trophy and the Stanley Cup with him. He seems to be thoroughly enjoying himself. What do you think of him and what do you think happens in the offseason? Because Tampa Bay is quite a bit over the salary cap, my friend. I think it's quite interesting, Frank. If a British sports player 
turned up at a press conference drunk, which Coach was. He had a few beers and things. Drunk and shirtless. <laughs> yeah, if, he, if a British soccer player or any sports player did that, they would get absolutely ripped apart. And, and just it would they would not be allowed to get away with it. Whereas over here, Kucherov turns up and does that, and everyone laughs and goes, yeah, good for you. What a great attitude and what a laugh. I mean, yeah, yeah I didn't agree with his criticism of Fleury because, to be honest, all three finalists for the Vezina, um, Fleury, um, Hellebuck and Vasilevsky, any of the three of them could have won it. And Fleury got it as much as a career award as for the season award. And I've got no problem with that. And I think Cooch was a little bit not thinking straight when he criticised him. Um, so I think if next year, if, if the Bolts play the Golden Knights and Fleury stops Cooch off on a one-on-one, you know that he's going to give him a bit of a finger, you know, a finger back at him as to say that's retaliation. But yeah, I mean, you know, the other comments about Vassy winning the Consmise and stuff, those are all quite legit. And having a go at the Montreal fans, I've got no problem with that. It was just a player letting off steam at the end of an incredibly strenuous event. And of course, then you hear about all these players that Killorn had a broken leg and Kucherov had cracked ribs. I think it's only then you realise just how tough these hockey players are. Paul Stewart joined us. Paul, you got to be a little bit careful. I mean, when you're using the term cooch repeatedly and then finger in the same sentence, you got to be careful because, uh, you know, people are not sh- uh, sure what you're actually talking about here. That's probably the first time we use multiple cooches in, uh, in, on this show. <laughs> well, it's, it's not like he's talking about a rugby match and stuff going on in the scrum or something. No. <laughs> The scrum, I think, I think the cooch and the scrum. What's really funny is when you talk about rugby, one of the positions in rugby is hooker, which, of course, has a slightly different meaning for you guys. So, you know, we suddenly talk about, you know, there's a there's a big six-foot-five hooker playing for England or South Africa. It's a bit different to how you guys would think about it. But I think that's the difference of where we have... It's the same language, but it's not the same language, which we can always have fun about. I think it's very safe to say none of us would like to see a 6'5 hooker. I'm not even going to reply to that one. (laughs) Although on the rugby field, I hear sometimes that's a big thumbs up. I mean, it is just like, you know, we talk soccer and football and, and the different terminology, and we you know we've talked about this, and that we try not to use the American phrases when we're commentating over here. But, I mean, I know a friend of mine, an English soccer guy, does commentary for ESPN, and he just said he talk, he commentates in the same way as he would for an American audience as he does for the English audience, and they love it. Paul, speaking of which, uh, what do you think of the – the primary English uh, announcers that broadcast these games for ESPN over here, what Derek Ray and 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 who uh, and there's another one as well too. I think I mean I've heard a little bit of the stuff they do, and I just simply to me that sounds quite normal because it would be the same as if you know when, when I hear NFL commentaries, I'm used to hearing Chris Collinsworth, Alan Michaels, you know, and, and Troy Aikman, Joe Buck, people like that. But I think if if you heard myself and my former colleague Nick Holling, when we used to call NFL Europe games, you would think it sounds very, very strange for an English voice to be calling an NFL game. You know, and I think it would be if I heard an American calling an England soccer match, it would seem strange to me because it would just seem out of place and not quite right. Well, there's no one like Toby Charles. Remember that. All right. The great Toby Charles back in the day. You should remember who he is, Paul. 
I think that might be before my time, TC. You're showing your age there, my friend. Well, you know, it's interesting, too, when you're talking about the different announcing style. I remember watching Wimbledon my entire life, and every once in a while they would say, now we're going to give you a couple points from the British announcing team. And they don't say anything. They let the game speak for itself yes. or whatever, whereas the U.S. team, they feel like if, if we have any dead air, it's like you're watching. You're not on radio. You don't have to cover every second. Correct. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of my producers once told me that less is more. Many years ago, I was at Wimbledon Tennis with the late, great Dick Enberg, um, and we got talking. I just recognised him. We were talking NFL, and we got talking about tennis commentaries, the very same subject. And, yeah, he said, I mean, even when he did football and baseball, there were times when he would just go dead quiet because less was more. Yes, one of the best, Dick Enberg, no question about it. Yes, he was. All right, Paul. Well, Frank. Ask Paul what your real question is. Frank's been dying to ask you uh, this question here today. Go ahead. Okay. About about Paul Stewart's uh, bedtime. Well, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, we're, we're always saying that we're interrupting you in the middle of the night and that. It's like it's like 11 p.m. over there, right? Is that late for you? Is that late for most Englanders? Do some of them go out to the pubs and they party till the wee hours of the morning? Or is it because you have an early morning job that it's a little bit later for you? Because I um, thought a lot well, of people in England really went out and, uh, you know, they... They, they went, tied one on? They, they, they went long into the night sometimes. Yeah, and part two of this, how late are those pubs open? Weeknights, weekends? Um, pubs always close 11 o'clock. Um, wow. There's no staying out after that. Nightclubs can stay open longer, but actual pubs shut at 11. So someone like Justin would not be able to survive in London because I'm pretty sure he'd want to stay out later than that. You should have seen the look on his face when you said that. You nailed it. Yes. I'm I'm watching him, TC. I can see the look on his face. I think, I mean, to me, I mean, yes, I mean, I'm used to staying up late night to watch American sports. I have to admit, I did fall asleep during game four of the hockey last week, but it was three o'clock in the morning. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's late for me, but I say when you're watching sports and you watch Monday Night Football that starts at 1 a.m. UK time, you just get used to it. The same as you were getting up early the last two weeks, Frank, to watch the Wimbledon, because it, it, to you, it's about a five o'clock in the morning start. Yeah, exactly. But I, I find that interesting, too. So when you're watching all these American sports, you have to watch at home because you can't go to a pub to watch it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, to be honest. I mean, I've been to a couple of Super Bowl parties where they've had the game on during the night, you know, like a closed closed pub environment, but it's not really the same. So to me, I mean, I've got used over the last 30 years to me watching sport is a very individual experience where I'm sitting in my house watching the game. And if it's in the middle of the night, I'll have headphones on so I didn't keep my family awake. So to me, it's a different kind of environment, just the same as you probably watch Wimbledon on your own early morning before breakfast. All right. He is Paul Buckpower Stewart. We are weeks away from training camp, those Tampa Bay Buccaneers uh, getting close. So, Paul, what do you have to look forward to now? I mean, England, they're done with the Euro 2020. You're going to have the start of the football season starting back up there again. So I know people will be going crazy with that, but... uh, what about the Olympics? I mean, what what are Brits talking about? What do they have to look forward to in the next week or two? Well, don't forget, it's not the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's the defending Super Bowl <laughs> champion Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Say no more, time. Squire! Um, so right now, so we have a huge week, summer of sport going on. So this week, the Open Golf, or the British Open, as you guys insist on calling it, takes place at Royal St George's. That starts on Thursday. This weekend, we've got the Formula One British Grand Prix. 
Lewis Hamilton's British driver is defending world champion. That will be a huge event. Yep. And then you roll into the yep, Olympics yep, yep. and start picking up. So for this week, by this weekend, the football will, the soccer will have been forgotten. It'll be golf and the Formula One, and then we'll pick up towards you know, the Olympics. Then we've got a big cricket test match series against India going on through August. And then we'll be back into the new Premier League season. So whereas you have, you know, very seasons that build up to playoffs, we have all these different sporting events that sort of come and go quite quickly. So the sort of sporting interest goes with it during the summer. No interest in the Tour de France? Well, there's no real British... We, yeah. The British guys won it a few years ago. And to be honest, I, I've... A friend of mine commentates, he does the commentary on the Tour de France, and he says it's an amazing event to go to. So, yes, you can watch it live, but to be honest, I got very disillusioned with cycling because of all the drug cheating that's going on. <laughs> Paul Buckpower Stewart, how long does that cricket match go with England and India? That's what I want to know. Um, a, a test match will last five days. It's five days, and it's about six hours a day. Because unlike baseball, in cricket, when you hit the ball, you don't have to run. You can choose when you run, so you can stay in a lot longer. But you can have one-day cricket matches as well, which become drinking contests. We, but, yeah, test matches last five days. Yeah, we need a longer show for you to uh, explain that to us. I, I, I've, I've watched cricket. I try to get into it, and so they're like, well, they only scored 82 runs that at, that at, that at bat, so I don't know if that's going to be enough to hold the other team off. And it's like... What are you talking about? They decide when to run or not. Ah, I see I hit that one in the gap. Nah, I'm not going to run. Please do not ask me to explain cricket. I will yeah. just say it's baseball for the British, and I'm going to leave it at there that. There you just, go. Just watch out for those sticky wickets. That's right. It's true. All right, my friend. We'll let you get back to your cooch or cooches. All right, my man. We appreciate the time. Pleasure. Paul, outstanding, right. my friend. We'll talk to you All soon. The, the sticky wicket, by the way, is when the wicket, when it rains and it actually gets in the mud a little bit. They call it the sticky wicket. That's uh, what you call it. Okay. I, you, I, I did a report on cricket back in eighth grade, and I've kind of tried to watch it since, but it's it's a difficult game to really – it's like it's so, so much of it makes no sense to me. But you uh, you, you stick with that phrase, though. That's, well, there you go. I thought it was amusing when I was in eighth grade because I was in eighth grade. <laughs> Now that uh, phrase has a different meaning. Maybe. All right. Paul Stewart. Always fun. Jolly good fun with Paul Stewart. All right. When we come back, uh, we'll talk a little bit more about UFC 264. And we've got a couple days to wait for the NBA Finals game number four. But tonight, USA-Australia, what's going to happen there? T.C. Martin, Ballpark Frank here on this bloody Monday. Hey, this is Steve Heitner, and you're listening to T.C. Martin. He's huge, baby. All right, glad to have you here on this Monday with us. If you miss any part of the show, go to the website, tcmartinshow.com. Check out the interviews, the blogs. It's all up there for you as well, too. And uh, i got a feeling Paul Buckpower Stewart's interview will be up there. Of course, it'll be on the show from today's show, but uh, check out the interview page as well, too. The classic interviews, the past interviews, they're all up there. So check it all out, tcmartinshow.com. It'll be on the TC Martin Show pitch. Yes, the pitch. I love saying the pitch. That's what it is. It's the pitch. 
And the pitch usually in pristine condition, too. At all these soccer Unlike Wimbledon venues. in week two. <laughs> Again, I was, way way uh, unlike the Open is going to be. Yes, yes. Or the British Open, as Paul says, we call it over here. And I know we talked about this three weeks ago, and you know how I feel about that. I'm watching, like, ah, too many brown spots, this and that. And I, find I love my, the huge sand traps. I, I, I love the bunkers. Yeah, I know, I know. But I'm going back to the Wimbledon. I'm watching Djokovic yesterday, and I'm going like, See, my eye just goes to the brown spots. It's like I, I'm watching the tennis, but I'm always looking at the brown spots and then where the ball boys are at. It's like, okay, looks beautiful on the first day, second day, and then gets ugly. But, yeah. A lot of matches. Yeah, I know. I know. I <laughs> With know. some pretty athletic people running around. Have you ever been on a grass court? Where, I have been on a grass well, I mean, court. A, like a real, yeah, finely yeah. cut. Yeah, that's something else, isn't it? Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, I, I never got a chance to really play on one much. I got to, like, just hit for, like, half an hour once or yeah. something, well, which was kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, you got on it. That's cool. You know, so, yeah, it, it was. but it is weird how, and I'm sure at Wimbledon it's not as bad as the one that I was on because they keep them up a lot more, but just the different bounces and everything when it, you know, when it hits different rough spots and things like that and how you kind of slide, like, you know, I thought that grass and clay were kind of similar with the sliding, and it's really not. In fact, at Wimbledon, they try to ask people not to slide as much in that because right. that's what rips up the grass right. even more. That's why Djokovic and players like him that are so good on clay as well that can play on every surface, they just, you know, they wipe it out, and, you know, then they have to d- dictate what kind of shoes they can wear and how big the little stubs can be on the bottom of that because they want the traction, but the tournament doesn't want the thing just completely eviscerated and ripped apart. So it's, it is interesting, and, it, and that's one of the things that makes Djokovic – Maybe the greatest of all time because he's won so many. I mean, Nadal, they've all won 20, but Federer was the king of Wimbledon. You know, Djokovic has now won six Wimbledons, but still not as many as Federer. We know that Nadal owns the French Open, and then he's won the other ones. Djokovic, I believe, is 9-0 and at the Australian. He's won now this, like I say, a sixth Wimbledon, and then he's won a couple French and a couple U.S. Opens. And now if he wins the U.S. Open again, I mean, that would not only be historic – and I know it's only tennis to some people out there. No, no, But no, it would be 21 me? championships, yeah. which would be the most ever, and a Grand Slam in the same year. Yeah. I mean, that's just... He's got it, it's, three quarters it's, it's of the way there. It's unbelievable. Yeah. No. You know, I, I, I've heard that Nadal is going to play at the U.S. Open. I don't know if he's going to make it or not, but he's going to make a concerted effort to try to make it in there. And I think part of it is because... He figures if anyone's going to stop Djokovic, it's going to be me because, again, these younger players. And Berrettini yesterday, he played well, but his backhand isn't consistent enough, and Djokovic played the big points better. In the second set, Berrettini had a chance to break. He missed it down the line, and then he hit one into the net for the other. I mean, he should have broken, been right back on serve. Now, that doesn't mean he wins the set, but Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer play the big points so much better than these younger guys. Yeah. Yeah, Djokovic, I don't, I don't see Nadal or anyone stopping him. And, and again, if Nadal is not 100% healthy as well, too. On clay, yeah. maybe. Yeah. And on the hard courts, and again, Nadal can play all the surfaces as well, but he's the king of clay for right. a reason. So, Djokovic is just the best player in the world right now. You talked about Berrettini. Um, a little bit too early for me to start on a terrible Tuesday because I, I didn't like the hat. Okay, Guys wearing hats and then wearing them backwards while they play tennis – See, I got an issue with that. I don't want to see it. So you prefer men without hats? Uh, men without hats, absolutely. <laughs> there it is. The you, safety. You dance. like the safety dance? Yeah, absolutely correct. Especially when you are a six foot five hooker on the uh, on the field, <laughs> right? So. Right on the pitch. You gotta use safety. 
<laughs> How do you feel about the hat? Now, knowing you, you probably oh, I could care less about it. It just looked goofy. He looked goofy yesterday. Wearing the hat, wearing it backwards. You are at the All England London Tennis Club. You're in the final of Wimbledon. Come on. Get rid of the hat. It looks hokey joke, man. It didn't bother me whatsoever. And the T-shirt that he's wearing. Come on, Well, man. they have to wear the white. You know, you can't have any color in that. So it looked like he had a wife beater white. on. He had the Chris Wien wife beater on. That's what he had going on. He didn't have the collared I, shirt. I, I have to admit... It, maybe I notice the outfit sometimes when I'm watching the ladies yeah. play, but as far as the men in that, I, I really don't. I watch for the tennis. The guy's wearing a hat. I, I, He's wearing a hat backwards. I, I'm replaying the match now in my you look mind. Like Chris Penn. And now I see a hat. Yeah. I didn't even realize he was wearing one until you just brought it up because I don't <laughs> care. <laughs> Why do I notice these things? I notice the brown spots. I notice uh, well the brown the spots are hard to miss yeah, I know. because the entire baseline is a brown spot and in, in the olden days it used to be worse going to the net when everything was serve and volley yes and that's one thing that Djokovic really showed I never saw Djokovic go to the net so much in a match yeah he did he did he was up there and he was winning every dang point he went up well, there he wanted to he wanted to get out of there man they had other programming on he knew that they had to get to well the no Italy he English game well yeah he yeah and and and, and that was kind of like the appetizer for that and according yeah. to uh, Paul. Over in England, you know, it wasn't much of an appetizer. Oh, People it, just wanted the main course. Like I said, they, uh, it was definitely second-tier news. No question. Now, I do know Tom Cruise was there because I saw him in the stands. Just, so, he, so he was one celebrity not at UFC 264, but yeah. he was at Wimbledon. All right, UFC 264. We talked about it last hour with Dustin Poirier defeating Conor McGregor. Doctor stoppage at the end of the first round. Conor McGregor breaks his ankle. T- Conor McGregor on his tirade again. And uh, he was horrendous at the press conference, horrendous at the weigh-in. And like Heidi Fang said, usually after the match is over, then, okay, he'll give the guy a little bit of credit. And, and remember, what had happened where back in January, the pre-fight press conference where McGregor is coming off that victory, even though it was you know seven years earlier, he was nice to Poirier, saying he's got nothing against the guy. Man, now does it flip. And then it flipped to the all-time where he's calling on his wife and calling calling her a hoe. I mean, ridiculous, the behavior here with Conor McGregor. We understand that it's for show and this and that. But, again, there's bitterness. There is some angriness and downright embarrassment for the way he ended this, you know, basically on his back for a majority of that match. And then with the broken ankle, doing the interview uh, you know, up against uh, the cage there in the octagon, bleeding profusely and having a broken angle that looked, looked totally grotesque. I mean, it's just humiliating for the guy. And then he just continues to add insult to injury with his comments and his behavior. And he's got to know that, okay, I'm, I'm turning off some people here. And I'm tired of the people saying, yeah, but it'll still draw this and that. Not, not anymore. Those days are gone. And again, against a top-tier guy, he's not going to be competitive. And he is really turning into a circus sideshow. And I really firmly believe that he's going to go the Mayweather routine real soon here where he's going to be relegated to exhibitions. Well, you know, it's interesting because on Friday when we were leading up to this fight and we talked about it, we had mentioned that, you know, I said it, Heidi said it, I believe that you were on board as well, that 
McGregor seemed like he was trying to talk himself into that he was the old Conor McGregor again, that he was the notorious one, that he was back, that he was going to not only beat Poirier but knock his head off, kill him in the cage, doing all this stuff to pump himself up that I'm the baddest man on the planet again. And it seemed like, I don't know if he thought it was getting Poirier's head or not, but it definitely wasn't. You could see that. Poirier was just kind of like, yeah, whatever, dude. Yeah, here we Saying go again. Saying you're going to kill there, me yeah. is not cool, but I'm not going to let it bother me either because I'm going to kick your butt in the cage. I think Conor McGregor realizes that it's all slipping away or that it's even has slipped away already. And then he loses, and because of the fashion he lost, he's like, wait, I can still sell this. I think he's trying to convince himself. And I think he's, well, I can still sell out this. I know Poirier's not going over to Allegiant, but I had said, after I win this, we're going to take on Oliveira, and we're going to go over there, and we're going to sell out Allegiant Stadium. He's seeing it slipping away. He was the king. He was on top of Mount Everest. And now he's sliding down, but he's not sliding down. He's falling down rapidly. He's becoming less and less essential. He's almost becoming that guy that you that you look at and it's like, okay, well, if you beat Connor, you could have a chance at a championship or not. And then if you can't, maybe you can't. But he, he's becoming one of those things that nobody fears him anymore. Now they want to fight him because they think, I can beat him. He's a great person to put on my resume, and he's going to get me bigger paydays down the back end. Connor doesn't want to be a stepping stone for somebody else out there. I think he's having a hard time realizing that he's not the notorious one anymore. You know, there's talk of, oh, they got to finish the trilogy with Diaz. Why? Yeah. Who wants I mean, to see you know, that? And, and, and Diaz is almost in the same situation that uh, McGregor is. And so people think that he's going to sell out Allegiant Stadium. No, he's not. He's not going to sell out Allegiant Stadium. A guy who's won one out of his last four fights, and the guy he beat was Cowboy Cerrone, who is nobody at this at this no, stage. No, Cowboy Cerrone is a shell of himself. Yeah, thank Absolutely you. That's 100%. my point exactly. And again, if Connor would have knocked Poirier out in incredible fashion. Yeah, different story. Maybe. Maybe then he does sell that out. Yes. And, and especially with a other really big main eventer, you know. I And I know Dana White doesn't want to even think about going into Allegiant without knowing that he can sell it out. To me, there's only one MMA guy right now that has that name power, and that's John Jones. Yeah, yeah. But I, and, but I think, don't know who he's going to fight. Yeah. I don't know if he yeah. could. And it's like, and again, I don't even know if that did it. There is no it, UFC fight that can sell out Allegiant Stadium right now. Not to me. It, I, I, I don't see Conor it. Conor McGregor could have done it three years ago. Yeah. He could, and he could have maybe yeah. done it if he, if he yeah. knocked out Poirier yeah. in spectacular fashion here. Right. But that didn't come close remember, to happening. Even if you get 35 or 40,000 fans, that is a tremendous accomplishment. That's double of what you get at T-Mobile Arena. More than double. Oh, for sure. But you're not selling out 70, 80,000 like a Garth Brooks would or a Paul McCartney or somebody like that or, you know, an NFL game with the Raiders. It's just not going to happen. And a boxing match can't do it. Even as Canelo Alvarez, it's not going to do it. As good as Canelo Alvarez is, you need a dance partner. Conor McGregor is number one, doesn't have that right dance partner that's going to make for a competitive fight. But then again, he's lost. His his viability and his luster. Can he market? Absolutely, he could still market. But who are you marketing to? Okay, you're marketing to the Jake Pauls of the world in, in, in that that realm. I mean, that's where he's going right now. So again, if you're looking for a competitive world championship bout with multiple belts on it, Conor McGregor's not in that fight. 
I don't care if it's at Allegiant Stadium uh, uh, or T-Mobile Arena or anywhere for that matter. It's just it's not happening. No, I agree with you. And, and right now, like I say, that's why I say John Jones because he's still. But but again, I don't I don't think he could do that. Um, Amanda Nunez, I think it's, he is the one fighter yeah. that I always she's must see, but I don't think yeah. she's big enough. And again, like you said, she yeah. doesn't have that dance partner. You know, yeah. you know, maybe if. If she would have fought Cyborg years ago when Cyborg was still relevant, then we saw her at one of the uh, fights over at the, the Virgin yeah. and that. So, you know, I mean, there, there's names out there, but not names to sell out a venue like that. That's like, its biggest Fury Wilder was. Yeah. They didn't say, we're going to Allegiant right away. They were happy to be at T-Mobile and let's sell yeah. that out now and try to build something and see if we can get something down the road. So, yeah, I don't know when they go there, but everybody that thinks that, that Dana White is just chomping at the bit to get into Allegiant, he is in the sense that he wants to have a fight card there, but he doesn't want anything but a guaranteed yeah. knockdown, drag him out, sell out event there. And, and with a popular UFC without Conor McGregor, you don't need to do that. You're fine at T-Mobile in GM sure. Grand. You're fine. Here's Conor McGregor uh, after his surgery. What's up, fight fans? The Notorious here. Just out of the surgery room. Everything went to plan. Um, everything went perfect. I'm feeling tremendous. We got six weeks on a crutch now, and then we begin to build back. Um, you know, I want to thank all the fans all around the world for your messages of support. I hope you all enjoyed the show. I want to thank all the fans in attendance at the T-Mobile Arena. 21,800 fans in attendance. The place was absolutely electric. Um, it would have been. It was a hell of a first round. It would have been nice to get into that second round. And then, you know, to see what's what. But it is what it is. That's the nature of the business. A clean break of the tibia. And it was not to be. You know, Dustin, you can celebrate that illegitimate win all you want. But you've done nothing in there. That second round would have shown all. And, you know, onwards and upwards we go, team. We dust ourselves off. We build ourselves back. And we come back better than ever. Let's go, team. Conor McGregor was great there for the first 46 seconds. Until he started bagging on Poirier again. And it would have been nice to hear those first 46 seconds, 48 hours ago, in the ring. And then, you know what? Then people would have respected him a little bit more. But they go, man, here he is again, just you know, making more excuses. And again, when you go the vulgar routine and talking about somebody else's wife, just... Not a good look, man. And to say, Dustin, you did nothing? Well, you, you've got to at least... Admit that he won the round. He dominated. So, so if nothing else, he was up one round to none on you. Yeah. At the very least. Yeah. yeah. Conor McGregor was not winning that fight, barring a miracle. All right, I want to thank Heidi Fang for joining us for talking about UFC 264. BJ Armstrong, the NBA Finals. Paul Buckpower Stewart from England talking Euro 2020 Wimbledon and more. Uh, great stuff there. All of that will be up on the website at tcmartinshow.com. Available on all the podcast platforms as well. Spotify, iTunes. Just where you go for podcasts, go check it all out. Subscribe, T.C. Martin Show uh, there. All right. Ballpark Frank, we're back out again tomorrow. Terrible Tuesday. Looking forward to that. And USA against Australia tonight. What do you think? Are you more excited about that or the Home Run Derby? Home Run Derby Otani, yeah. And I'm looking forward to, the, to that and the All-Star Game on Tuesday as well, too. And the WNBA All-Star Game. And our buddy Chris Wednesday. Wynn is taking a flyer on a uh, bit of a long set in the Home Run Derby. Uh, what boy. a shock. <laughs> I think I'll take the field against Otani. How's that? All right. Have yourself a good one. We'll talk to you again tomorrow, too.